Hello and welcome to Pause Pop, positively pop culture, where we talk about things we love enthusiastically and without guilt. I'm KW Taylor. And I'm Carrie Gessner. And this week we're talking about the new adaptation of The Stand, the movie Kajillionaire, and Taylor Swift's new album Evermore. I am very excited for all of these topics. Yes, but you watched this movie. I've never heard of this movie, Kajillionaire. Let's start with that because the title is really funny. <laughs> sure. Yeah. It was weird because the only reason I know about it is the trailer was a promoted tweet on Twitter over the summer. And I was like, that looks really strange. <laughs> so it's written and directed by Miranda July. And it stars Evan Rachel Wood, Gina Rodriguez, Richard Jenkins, and Deborah Winger. Okay. Okay, so when the trailer popped up, I watched it because I like Evan Rachel Wood, and it was just so strange, and I couldn't really discern the plot at all. (laughs) (laughs) I really had no idea what to expect going into it. Uh The thing that struck me is that Evan Rachel Wood uses a deeper voice in this movie than her, I guess, her regular voice. Oh, weird. Yeah, which is very strange. And I read something about how it's actually closer to her real voice, and she artificially speaks a little bit higher than she normally does. I don't know. It was kind of strange. So her character's name is Old Dolio. (laughs) What? (laughs) There's a reason for that, but I won't tell you because it's when you find out in the film, it's just so bizarre. And the whole movie is bizarre, but it's also really touching. Like, I didn't expect it to be that touching. Oh. So... Evan Rachel Wood's character, Old Dolio, and her parents, Richard Jenkins and Deborah Winger, are grifters, mm-hmm. like small time. They live out in LA and they do things like have 100 email addresses to enter the same contest to see if they win. <laughs> and, <laughs> and Old Dolio goes to like a parenting class for one of their neighbors for like 20 bucks. So they do like very small time things. Mm-hmm. And they're behind on rent and they're landlord gives them an ultimatum like have it in two weeks or else we'll kick you out so they come up with this plan old dolio comes up with this plan because they need 1500 dollars. and i don't know if this is true but i guess luggage insurance when you fly is like 1575 is the most you can get back for Uh insurance so they come up with this plan where they all fly to new york on tickets that they won (laughs) In one of their email addresses. (laughs) And then they'll fly back separately. Like the parents will be together and old Dolio will be separate. And they'll take her suitcase and she'll pretend that she lost it. So she'll go claim it as lost. Oh. Yeah. And get hopefully get the 1575. Okay. And on the way back, because old Dolio is not sitting with them, they are sat next to Melanie, who's played by Gina Rodriguez. Mm Mm-hmm. And she kind of gets sucked into their family because she thinks they're really intriguing. And she sort of figures out that they're up to something. And she's also very charming. So she, they just kind of let her in very easily. And when they land, they start doing a few small time jobs together. And I mean, there's not like a ton of plot. And I don't know exactly how much I want to give away because... It really was surprising and uh, very strange and very touching. And okay, so basically stuff goes down and it becomes sort of a character study of old Dolio and 
if she wants to keep her parents in her life or cut them out because they are not healthy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they don't really treat her like a daughter either, which is why Melanie's appearance sort of incites all this because they're really great to her. And old Dolio is just like, oh, like you have never called me sweetheart. Like you just called her sweetheart. You've never like made me pancakes. You've never danced with me. Mm-hmm. She comes in with a check with the $1,600 check from the luggage insurance. Mm-hmm. And she's like, I will give you all of this because they usually split it three ways. Mm. I'll give you all of this if you just call me honey. Oh. And her mom won't do it. Oh. And it's so sad. Yeah. So it, it sort of becomes an exploration of like who old Dulio is and who she wants to be. Mm-hmm. And I just think Evan Rachel Wood is incredible in this movie because she's oh. so, so awkward. And <laughs> And yeah, just very endearing and it becomes very, very sweet. And yeah, I had a lot of feelings by the end of it. Like I went in and I was like, okay, this is some sort of heist movie. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then I came out and I was like, no, it wasn't. (laughs) Oh, it was about old Dulio. (laughs) Oh, Marina July is really strange. Like her films (laughs) and her work is very quirky and weird. And I've seen some of it, but I have to say that if you want if you want a taste of like her style without committing to a full length movie, she also directed some music videos. Okay. Including my favorite Slater Kinney song, Get Up from 1999. Okay. Which is extremely feminist in really cool. subtle ways. So I think you might enjoy that as a song, but also like the the way July interprets the song. So nice. Yeah, I will definitely look that up. That yeah. seems great. It's yeah, it's very strange. It's a very strange movie. <laughs> Where is it? Is it streaming somewhere right now? Or how do you how did you watch it? It's not. I actually was so intrigued by it that I rented it on Amazon. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cool. So it's not currently streaming, but it is available to rent if okay. you want to spend a couple bucks. Cool. This sounds kind of up my alley in terms of quirkiness. I also really mm-hmm. like Deborah Winger and she doesn't appear in a lot of stuff. So anytime she can come out of semi-retirement. <laughs> I think that's good. Yeah, cool. She was interesting. Actually, when I watched this movie, at the end of it, I was like, yeah, KW would like this. <laughs> so I hope you do like it. Cool. It sounds fun. But you have been watching The Stand, the new yes. adaptation of that. Yes. I know that you love Stephen King and, you, yes. and you've read the book and you've watched the older series. So mm-hmm. tell us, you know, tell us all your thoughts on that. Yeah. And I also want to give a shout out to our podcasting friends with the Ink to Film podcast, because I think they are covering this as well. Their podcast specifically will look at books that are then translated into either television series or films. So they're going to probably speak much more intellectually about especially the filmmaking element of it. So check out if you're interested in The Stand, if you like Stephen King, check out the episode of Ink to Film that is on this too. But just kind of as a brief sketch. Yeah, I read the book in the 90s. It is a commitment. This book was written in the late 70s. And it is in its unedited edition, because there's two editions. But in its expanded author's preferred edition, it's well over a 1000 pages long. And I think it took me like three to six months to read it, if I remember. It's been a really long time since I first read it. So I know it was I know it was several months. And I remember feeling like I was living in the book like it was that much (laughs) and I think with a book that long even though it's been so long since I read it 
I remember quite a bit of it because you're just in that world. When you're when you're committing to a book of that length and you're reading it pretty constantly as your only sort of, you know, aside from school reading, it just kind of permeates your psyche for a while. So I remember quite a bit of the book, but it was adapted into a miniseries the first time in 1994. And that's the one that I, you know, really felt was sort of the definitive edition. But with a book that long, a miniseries, if you're trying to do a very faithful adaptation, which that that was, but it was very, with a miniseries trying to adapt a book that long, it, it was by necessity very condensed and abridged. Mm-hmm. The 2020 miniseries is less so, but the problem with that is that it ends up sort of feeling a little bit slower. It's a little bit longer than the, the 94 version. And there are some details that are adjusted. My understanding is that the last episode is actually going to be new material that King wrote specifically for this version. Hmm. So that's going to end up being a surprise. It's being released weekly, so I can't binge it. (laughs) So I'm (laughs) currently at the point where I've watched some of it, but not all of it. But the premise of this, I don't know how much you know about this or how much our listeners know, but basically this novel is very sort of appropriate for today because it hinges on the fact that there is a worldwide pandemic that kills it's the reverse of COVID. It essentially kills the opposite percentage of people. So most people who get this disease that they've called Captain Trips, which is why some people refer to COVID as Captain Trips. <laughs> and I don't remember the derivation of that. They don't actually go into that in this version of the okay. series. But basically, so you're left with 1% to 2% of the population still alive rather than wow. the opposite. So it's very, um, and death is pretty quick. It's It presents like a cold but then you start getting swollen neck glands and you basically just abruptly die very quickly upon contact. terrifying. Yes. Why would anyone be watching this right now? Well, I, they, they filmed all this and planned it before that ever happened. So <laughs> it's kind of like there was another, there was an Amazon Prime series called Utopia that was about a pandemic and that was all finished before covid so they still released it and i watched it but that that was actually canceled after one season and i feel like it was because of current events (laughs) anyway so this disease kills most of the population and what we're left with is following several characters who have survived due to just apparent natural immunity they're not able to figure out really anything about the disease pathology because even scientists get killed so quickly it just is uncontainable so we're left with a, a small group of people, and they're focusing on people in the U.S. So our, our primary protagonist is this guy, Stu Redman, played by James Marsden. And he's, you don't really know too much about him. He was a widower even before the pandemic. And he ends up having to escape from a CDC compound because everybody there dies, and it's really oh, sad. And the woman who ends up being his partner is this young woman named Franny Goldsmith, played by Odessa Young. And she had gotten pregnant by her boyfriend who dies of the disease before the pandemic hit. So he dies of that and she's early in a pregnancy. Oh my gosh. And that's very sad. But she, a person in her hometown ends up surviving named Harold Lauder, played by Owen Teague. And he's a little bit younger than her. And in fact, she had been his babysitter and he is in love with her. But when she meets Stu, she kind of goes off with him and Harold is very bitter about that. There's a couple other sort of secondary characters, but those are sort of some of the core. And we've got a two figures of different goodness and badness embodied by this guy named Randall Flagg, played by Alexander Skarsgård. 
because you have to have a Skarsgård playing a villain in a Stephen King TV show. <laughs> That's just a rule. But Randall Flagg is kind of a, he's become a sort of breakout character in The Stand, but also other Stephen King media. He he makes oh. little guest appearances. And he's a very mysterious figure who seems to have, he seems to be either quasi or completely immortal. And he has some special powers, including possibly levitation. He seems to be able to enter people's dreams. He has powers of extreme persuasion. It's not clear if he's entirely human. Hmm. But he's very he's very evil, but he's very charming. And Skarsgård definitely sort of is a is a similar figure to if people liked him in True Blood playing Eric Northman. Eric is certainly a better character, but he was still a vampire and so not <laughs> not necessarily a classic good guy, but Randall Flagg is is certainly more evil. On the other side of the coin you have this woman named Mother Abigail, played by Whoopi Goldberg, and she seems to be entirely human, but she's this elderly woman who also seems to be able to enter people's dreams, but she's definitely a figure of good. And she does seem to have some kind of powers, which I equate kind of, if if all of Stephen King's works are kind of in the same universe, I think that she has what would have been called The Shining. Like she's got some sort of premonition powers and maybe some persuasion and telekinesis, but it's very muted and it's nothing like Randall Flagg, who I really believe is pretty entirely inhuman, even mm. if he maybe used to be human. Okay. And so people have dreams as they're sort of trying to figure out what to do in in light of the pandemic. Some people have dreams of Mother Abigail, and they're being compelled to go to Colorado. And some people have dreams of Randall Flagg, and they're being compelled to go to Las Vegas. Hmm. And people determine pretty early on that they can't stay in big cities because so many people died just in their own homes that it's not safe or pleasant to stay Jeez. around so many unburied dead bodies. Yeah, this is grim. There's a guy, Larry Underwood, who in, before the pandemic, he had been a rock musician. So Larry and this woman, Rita, meet in New York City. Rita's played by Heather Graham. And they stay in New York for a little bit, but they realize, nope, this is already starting to like smell bad and be bad. So we've got to leave. So part of the journey is just people realizing they need to get somewhere more controllable where they can build a new community it's it's very much like the walking dead and fear the walking dead in that regard and that they want to find a place they can sort of hole up and control and and clean up and get the power back on and stuff but unlike that they don't have to worry about zombies but they do have to worry about evil bad people they meet on the road and there's some mm -hmm. scenes like that but eventually they all congregate in Colorado and and start to form a sort of safe community. But they realize pretty quickly that there's this guy in Vegas who is creating the opposite sort of community that's dangerous mm. and possibly a threat. So part of the conflict is the people in Mother Abigail's community needed to decide how to deal with the Vegas community. And when we finally see the Vegas community, we see how exploitative and dangerous and creepy and terrible it is. Okay. And they need to, you know, it's a struggle for the spirit of what's left of humanity. Mm -hmm. And the title refers to the fact that, you know, good versus evil is always going to be the ultimate standoff and battle. Mm -hmm. And no matter what state society is in, it's kind of going to be this perpetuating cycle. Interesting. So, yeah, I mean, it's got some really interesting philosophical things to say. It's beautifully shot. Some of the things I I find that I don't like it as much as I had hoped I would. Okay. 
And normally we try to talk about stuff that we're really, really enjoying. And I was really, really enjoying it for a while. And then after a point, I realized that it's making some choices that are causing it to be more confusing than it needs to be. Okay. The book kind of jumps around in time just a little bit, but it's mostly linear in terms of you're in that book so long that it's not that hard to understand. <laughs> it's pretty straightforward. The The 94 miniseries version was taking much more of a linear approach. And this version is doing a lot of flashbacks, flash sideways, flash all over the place. And I don't know that it's as effective. And I think if you're not familiar with the source material, it's not probably the best introduction to it. Okay. That's good to know. Yeah. So I feel like if people don't want to commit to the thousand some page tome, that an actual better entry into this world is the 94 miniseries, even if it's a little cheesy. But that would be a good entry into maybe getting into the book. And then this version, it's fine. And it's well acted. (laughs) But I think it is confusing. Okay. So yeah. Good to know. Yeah. There's some really good like random guest stars in it too. JK Simmons shows up as a like a general who tries to help Stu escape from the CDC. And he's just always good, like whatever he's in. And Heather Graham's role is just a guest star, and she's very good. And, you know, the main actors are really good. The only thing I will say is that in terms of casting, James Marsden is like in his late 40s, and the girl playing Franny is like 22. And they both look their age, but maybe even more extremely younger and older. Because James Marsden, I could place him anywhere between 40 and 50, and he looks it. And Odessa Young look, looks like she's about 18, even though she's like 22. And they're supposed to be a couple. And oh. the people playing those roles in the other version were not nearly so far apart in age. And it's throwing me out a bit whenever they show them together yeah. romantically. I'm like, oh. Yeah, that's strange. Yeah, he could be her dad very easily. <laughs> so. And I realize, like, there's almost no one left on the planet. So, you know what? They could, I mean, it's not that big of a deal, but it's also, like, visually, as the viewer, it's grossing me out, to be right, honest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, what channel is this on? Or oh, what service? Yes, this is streaming on CBS All Access. Okay. And it started back in uh, mid-December, and they've just got a little bit more to go. They are releasing it weekly. So, I think... There's going to be nine episodes, and the last episode will air, or stream, rather, February 11th. Okay. Yep. So, CBS All Access. And be warned, it's pretty... There's there's moments of violence that are kind of upsetting, but other than some language, it's really... Like, I would say this is definitely oriented toward teens and up, but it's not airing on the regular over-the-air CBS, and I think just because it's so dark. Mm. But honestly, I find this one of the more ultimately hopeful and definitely more fantasy than horror for right. sure okay yeah yeah i didn't realize that i mean i should have because it's stephen king but i just sort of thought it was a straight post-apocalyptic thing uh, i didn't realize there were like the fantastical elements to it yeah there are yeah and i again like this is for sure within his more fantasy oriented work kind of like the Dark Tower series, which are, they all have like a little bit of horror elements in them, but it's definitely more what I would call dark fantasy. Okay. And I almost prefer his work that's like that. I think it's a little bit more interesting and mm-hmm. less gruesome, but still very, very character driven, like all his work. And that's why I like him more because he's a good character writer 
more mm-hmm. so than the actual genres that he writes. Cool. I think I think if you wanted to check this out, you should try the older version. Okay. Plus, because it's shorter, so it's less of a commitment. Okay. And I, I that's probably still available on DVD or something. So if you're curious, check that out. I am curious because I looked it up and Molly Ringwald is in it. <laughs> yes, Molly Ringwald plays Franny in that version, and and Rob Lowe is is this guy Nick Andros, and I feel like his performance was particularly good in that. So cool. Check that one out. I will try to do that. Yeah. Cool. But you've been very excited about your your girl, T-Swizzle. <laughs> <laughs> that is correct. Yes, I will take every opportunity possible to talk about T-Swift on this podcast. Cool. Okay, so she came out with a new album, which is absolutely wild to me that she is just spending quarantine being her at her most creative. I think that's wonderful. <laughs> yes. But it's called Evermore. It came out in December. Fun story <laughs> that has nothing to do with Taylor Swift, really. But my so my sister had a baby in December, Aww. and the day before, so this was like a surprise album drop. Uh-huh. The baby was not surprised, and <laughs> <laughs> and like on Thursday, the tenth, I think my sister was like close to being in labor. She was like, "I might go to the hospital today. We might go in labor." Just FYI. And I texted my friend and I was like, like, how terrible is it that I want the baby to be born? Not today, but tomorrow so that he will share a birthday with Taylor Swift's album. (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of terrible. I I know. (laughs) But I mean, it's not up to me, but he, he did wait and he was, he was born on the same day. (laughs) Oh. So I jokingly call him, I don't think my sister knows this. I jokingly call him Noah William Taylor Swift evermore (laughs) (laughs) anyway so i have been spending a lot of time listening to this album and you have recently listened to it a little bit so do you Mm -hmm. just want to chat about it what do you what are your first impressions it's it's very similar to folklore i liked folklore a little bit more because i did feel neither of these albums have bops i'm sorry (gasps) I know, but I feel like Rachel would disagree with that. Well, she might, but we'll have to have Rachel on to talk about how we quantify bops yes. in music. But I feel like it it definitely is a good companion album. And in terms of being that wintry, cozy, mm. drinking coffee by the fire, it's like right up there. And I feel like this one is more introspective and has less of the obvious character pieces than folklore. I don't want to just continually compare it to folklore. So I'll try to. That's okay. I mean, it is sort of a companion album. So I think that's fair. Yeah. I think, I think if you liked folklore, you will like this and Mm -hmm. vice versa, but maybe for different reasons, once you get more into both of them. So that's my basic first impression. What is your, I know you've listened to it much more than I have. So what is your impression right now? My impression right now is that I like it more than folklore, which I think is interesting that it's the opposite. Yeah. And I think I think half of it is because I I actually like the songs more, but the other half is probably just that it's the shiny new thing. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yep. Oh, so my first I think hmm I don't actually remember how I really felt about folklore the first time. I think I didn't really know what to expect. But going into this one, I knew more of what to expect because Folklore had been out already. Mm -hmm. And 
honestly, in the intervening months, like I found more friends who enjoy Taylor Swift. So <laughs> for me, it was an interesting experience because we all like freaked out that it was dropping the next day as a surprise. And then the day it came out, I remember I was on my lunch break and I was listening to it and like texting my friends about it. And I was like, oh my gosh, this line like made me stop. I had to turn off the song because it it, <laughs> it hit me so deep. Aww. So like, I think part of honestly, part of the reason I enjoy it so much is that I, there is sort of a communal element for me. Mm. And I've been talking to my friends about it and, it, you know, sharing our favorite songs and our favorite lyrics and like some head cannons too. Behind the song. <laughs> <laughs> like my friend Aaron and I have talked a lot about no body, no crime. Mm-hmm. And, and that's one of my favorite songs. I think it's Rachel's favorite song last we checked. Mm-hmm. But it's a it's a revenge murder song, I guess. Mm-hmm. It's it's got country roots, mm-hmm. and I like that one. It's there. It's her collaboration with Haim, and I really like them. And mm-hmm. I feel like their style fits that. Like they do that kind of like rock folk country, yeah, like alt rock mix, and I dig that a lot. I should get more into them. Yeah, me too. Actually, their voices are so pretty on that. So yeah, that one's that one's really fun. Yeah, I think they are used to great effects in that song. Mm -hmm. So what are some of your favorite songs? I like that one a lot. I like Willow, Champagne Problems. I was initially like, this is sort of dorky and (gasps) awkward. No, just the the title and the metaphor of Champagne Problems. But it's actually a really pretty song. And and I like the sort of like thoughts behind it. So I, I Willow and Champagne Problems, I actually sort of grew on me. Tis the Damn Season is really good, too. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's going to become sort of a an anti-holiday song. In the, <laughs> in the, but long story short, like, I was kind of, the first time I was listening to this, I was kind of like, sort of had it on the background and sort of get into it. Mm-hmm. And then that one came on and I was like, whoa, I need to pause this and like put a little like on my Spotify. Oh, and, cool. Like... For some reason, because I love when she sings about people who have been mean to her for some reason, like groups of frenemies or actual haters or something. And even though this is like a about a breakup and about a new person, there's still that element of like having nemeses. And she even talks about that. And like, past me, I want to tell you not to get lost in these petty things. Your nemeses will defeat themselves before you get the chance to swing. I'm like... <laughs> That is right. You yeah. need to like, it's true, but also it's a little bit of trying to get over that mindset, but also mm-hmm. still having it a little bit. Because my favorite song of hers is Shake It Off. And like, I used to play okay. that on repeat when I was having difficult work situations. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Bad Blood. I love Bad Blood. Yeah. So like, this is a little in my mind, the homage to the the old bitter manic pixie dream girl taylor (laughs) (laughs) absolutely and i think that's interesting because i wanted to bring up that there is a sort of narrative maturity that Mm -hmm. runs through these songs Mm -hmm. in happiness in champagne problems i think Mm -hmm. in closure and i think she's kind of just like there's this new outlook of oh especially also in it's time to go which is a bonus track that you haven't listened to, but it's it goes through that too. Okay. Of her just being like, you know what? I'm leaving some stuff in the past and I will admit that 
I've made mistakes too, but it's it's time to move on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I see that running throughout. And I also feel like she's happier here than in folklore. Mm. Where, and again, she's playing, I mean, these are sort of character pieces, both albums. So it's yeah. not always personal. And that in and of itself is kind of interesting. Like, you know, I'm a big Bowie fan. When he got married in the early 90s, he wasn't writing as many bitter songs about exes and stuff. <laughs> so he started to take on different kind of character things or, or writing from the point of view of talking about friends rather than a bad romance. And I feel like she's doing some similar stuff here, like taking yeah. on characters instead of talking about necessarily her own romantic life. Yeah, absolutely. Which yeah. I think is very interesting. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, obviously, you're going to have much broader types of songs mm-hmm. if you're thinking about characters and their experiences versus just your lived experiences. Mm-hmm. So, and I think that comes out really well in Tis the Damn Season and Dorothea, which are another paired group of songs. And I really like that she's been doing this. Like in folklore, it was Betty, August, and Cardigan, and they mm-hmm. were all about the same relationship and situation, but from three different points of view. And Mm -hmm. here it's the same thing. It's two different points of view on the same situation, Mm -hmm. which I think is just really a cool idea. And I wish Mm -hmm. more bands would do that. (laughs) Well, it's, it was common when doing kind of concept albums. And I don't think people think of her as doing concept albums, but this is, a way to do it on a smaller scale. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, like bands like Pink Floyd and and Bowie and like Angels and Airwaves, which are not as famous, but they're all kind of weirder artists and in rock. And I think people kind of expect things like that from from bands like that, The Who, yeah. etc. Et but see, there are other artists in different genres that do concept albums, but sometimes they don't even make it super obvious. Like Janet mm-hmm. Jackson did a concept album, but people don't okay. really think about it that way because it was all very subtle. So I think this is her dipping her toe into that, which can be really cool from a songwriting perspective. The other thing is I feel like she's growing, like she's always been almost better as a songwriter than a, than a performer. But I think she's growing even as a lyricist to a point that is, I mean, she's singing, but it's, it's poetry. So I think people should really look at her later work as being basically sung poetry. I agree. I also want to point out that so the the Long Pond Studio Sessions mm-hmm. special came out in December, and this is also a collaboration with Aaron Dessner of The National and Jack Antonoff, and they revealed that they uh, recorded a lot of this album when they were recording that special. Mm-hmm. And Aaron Dessner said, I think he tweeted something about how they spent one of those evenings like around the fire drinking wine. And Taylor Swift was like, all right, I'm going to bed, guys. And then she came out the next day with the whole song of Tis the Damn Season. She was like, I wrote this before I went to bed. (laughs) (laughs) And I just enjoy that so much. (laughs) She's so prolific. I will will ask this question. Mm -hmm. She's getting very prolific. Yeah. To a point that sometimes I just read a criticism. It might have just been on Twitter of Lana Del Rey that she's been putting out so many albums. And unlike Taylor, her her style doesn't really change from album to album mm-hmm. to a point where it's kind of starting to all run together. And I yeah. I do feel that. 
So are you worried that her, that Taylor is going to maybe commit that potential artistic infraction? Or do you think that she, other than this, this two album of the similar genre, is she diverse enough in her genres that it's not going to be that big a deal? I would lean toward the latter. Okay. I think even from this album, you can tell there's, there's some diversity in the way songs sound. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like, I, I try not to be, I try not to ask too much of creative people <laughs> because I just want them to be happy and like put out the stuff that they want to put out. And yeah. the more songs that she puts out, the more songs I'll like, even if I don't like every single one. So yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> what do you, how do you feel about that? I was like initially kind of worried about it, but I guess as okay. I talked through the question, I sort of answered my own question. Okay. And probably the the problem with somebody like Lana Del Rey is just, it's not a problem, but like just maybe, maybe Lana needs to have like a, a breakthrough of maybe trying on a different subgenre mm. if she wants to maintain that level of productivity. Yeah. Good to know. Yeah. I, I wasn't aware that Lana was putting out so many albums. She just, I mean, yeah, it's like two a year minimum. Oh, geez. She's, she's on, hang on. Taylor's only on her ninth album. Lana is only. on. Only. Lana is on her eighth album, but she has been producing stuff less time. So, okay. yeah, it's like one and two a year, which is still like not crazy, but you know. Yeah. I think, I think these musicians in quarantine, I mean, being in the studio is as long as you create a bubble and are super careful, it is one of the art forms that you can actually get done in quarantine. Yeah. So it's understandable that these musicians would, you know, do that, especially soloists, because mm-hmm. you probably don't need as much personnel. So, you know, we're if we're benefiting from it now, maybe they'll slow down when things are opened back up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you know what? I'm very happy for them, and they're keeping us entertained during yes. quarantine. But it does bring up a question. Do you think, since this doesn't seem like it will go away anytime soon, mm-hmm. do you think Taylor Swift will come out with a third quarantine album? Probably. <laughs> but, you know, I think... She's moving into this interesting sort of alternative direction. And Mm -hmm. if she wants to do a third one, I think it needs to maybe just be ever so slightly differentiated from the sort of more folky chamber pop style to to maybe, you know, I would love to see her do some lo-fi stuff like Lord or something. I think that could be really cool. Or like Billie Eilish. I think, I think her voice is not unsuited to that style. Yeah, should suggest it to her. I will. I will tweet at her right now. (laughs) Awesome. Well, I do want to point out that a couple of my favorite songs are Ivy Mm -hmm. and Marjorie. And Marjorie is about her grandmother, who I think she got a lot of her musical talent from. Mm. And they actually sample some of Marjorie's opera singing in the song, I think. And it just makes me think about my grandmas. And sometimes it makes me sad. But it's a very good song. Yeah, I like that one. Cool. Awesome. Well, next week, we're going to talk about more fun stuff, including the Disney Plus series WandaVision, the new game show The Hustler, and we're going back to the 2008 film Outlander, which you've been digging lately. (laughs) That is correct. (laughs) It is wonderful. So look forward to that, everyone. (laughs) Cool. Our theme music is by Joseph McDade. You can find me on Twitter at KWTaylorWriter. And me on Twitter at Carrie Gessner. 
And you can find us together on Twitter at Pause Pop Podcast. If you want to email us, you can do that at positivelypopculture at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy and safe and join us next time for another episode of Pause Pop. Pause Pop.